papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers, plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspaper men meet such interesting people. The Media Project is a window into decision-making in the newsroom with some veteran journalists, offering you a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's going on in the news media these days. I'm Rex Smith, former editor of the Times Union and the Record of Troy. With me here is Barbara Lombardo, former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Record, and WAMC's Ian Pickus, the news director here at Northeast Public Radio. How y'all doing? So far, so good. Excited to be back. <laughs> yeah, back. Here he is. Hey, actually, Ian, since you are back, why don't we start off with a little conversation about public radio? Because there's just a, there was an interesting tidbit about a fine public radio station, WAMU, in our nation's capital, licensed to American University in Washington, D.C., but it's a real strong news organization. But WAMU is shutting down its news site, DCS, it's called. They're laying off 15 staffers. And when you first hear about this, you think, well, that's really bad news. But they are doing this, they say, in order to focus on their core product, which is radio. And it seems to me that would raise a question for public radio stations and others in the media as we have these intersecting roles in the media these days. What do you think about that? Yeah, and this caught my eye because it happened to coincide the day that everyone was invited to an all-staff meeting. The station went to automation and they said, don't come into the office. We're meeting on Zoom at 9 a.m. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> WAMC was wrapping up its fun drive at the same time. And in the circles I'm in, you know, people were holding their breath to see what would happen at WAMU, which is one of the great public radio stations, as you say, in the U.S. Uh, yeah, interesting. They're shutting down their kind of hyper-local news site, and they say they're going to refocus on audio, building an app or a better app, as I understand it, uh, and focusing on podcasts and that sort of thing. Interesting, because I do think there's been a trend to try to do a lot more. The problem when you have limited resources and you're trying to do more is that you might be doing more, but are you doing any of those more well? Yeah, right. <laughs> and it seems to me, you know, audio is, is a growth industry. Podcasting is one of the few places where people are investing. It's one of the few places where advertisers still want to be in the media. So it seems like, you know, aside from the fact that 15 people have been laid off, which is terrible, maybe in the long run, it's smart to refocus on that thing you do better than other places in your market. Though that would suggest for legacy media like print <laughs> being stuck with print, which you don't really <laughs> want them to do, right? Well, it's not really just being stuck with print. What it made me think of was a little dose of healthy skepticism when they say we're going to focus on our core product or we see the opportunity to do this, so we're going to do less with that. And my sad experiences over the years had been that when we we were doing less of something else with fewer people, it was not at all compensated for with an increase in staffing or dedication to something something else. I remember when we were told there would be fewer editors at the print products in our whole newspaper group, and we were going to put more feet on the street because what we really needed were people out there getting the local news for the communities, and they would be forgiving of 
typos or unbalanced stories or mm. misrepresent the story, whatever. Uh, they would, <laughs> but that's not whatever happened. We lost the editors and we did not gain more reporters. Yeah, it is often a uh, concealed way to actually reduce payroll. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was interested, though, in, the, in this point of view, the vice chair of their board of advisors at WAMU said, too many media companies fail by trying to be all things to all people, leaving their value proposition diluted and weakened. It's an interesting point. Back in the early days of podcasts, which occurred when I was editor of the Times Union, I used to resist the push to do podcasts because I said there are too many bad podcasts already. True. Now the Times Union has hired digital experts and they can produce good podcasts, presumably. And I see WAMC, every newscast, uh, practically every story ends with more on WAMC.org, which seems to me to be sensible. Yeah, and it reminds me, this story, I was thinking about the brief flip camera era that we went through here at WAMC about 14, 15 years ago, before the technology had gotten any good. We decided, and it was the right move at the time, hey, we should be doing more than just radio stories of audio. Let's get every reporter a flip camera so they can film their own stories out in the field. Sounds good on paper. Practically speaking, you got very shoddy videos that were not expertly edited, that got posted for basically no one, and took away from the main skill of the reporter, which was to do radio stories in the first place. And that was eventually abandoned. At the same time, smartphones got better and better, and then the video kind of caught up, and it got much easier to do that. But I think there's something to doing the thing that you know you do very well, and then bolstering it at WAMC.org, for example, with high-res photos with slideshows with embedded graphics or documents you've obtained if the technology doesn't do justice to that then you end up looking silly by trying to force crank out content like that yeah that that same thing happened in in the print journalism world as well when we had to have reporters who might have been very adept at their interviewing and writing skills then were also required and you probably there during that time Ian required to make little video snippets they had to learn to put up some schlocky little minute or two video or or if they really tried to do a great job with it they were investing a lot of time to make it something that we would be proud of and yeah. it's, uh, it was hard to have people in both worlds it was I brought in a consultant to the Times Union newsroom and I required everybody in the newsroom to go through video training in retrospect square peg in the round hole it really was. But the instinct was right. Yeah, yeah. You know, the editor of the San Francisco Chronicle at the time tried to put a good face on this, and they actually branded it. And they said, you can check sfgate.com for shaky hand video. That was the branding, <laughs> shaky hand video, because the reporters were so bad at it. Calling it like it is. That's, yeah. That's, that's, kind of, that's kind of clever. I like that. You know, anyway, I think we are still in the and maybe we will be forever, would say we're in the early stages of the digital revolution. And if digital is really to information like the printing press, it's going to be continuing to evolve, and we'll probably never think that we quite have it right. And there's a hierarchy here, I think. You know, the the higher quality stuff is the most important. If you're bringing something to the table, whether it's video or tweets or whatever, that's unique to you or better than your competition, that's better than just spamming everybody with all these videos. But even that, I would say, is better than doing nothing. So maybe you guys can explain to me, because I'm not familiar with it, 
with the DCist losing its staffers or 15 staffers and then shutting down the DCist, um, who's losing what? What communities are losing what type of news? Well, I mean that's a that's a good question because DCS was <laughs> DCS was focusing on local news in the district or in DMV as they call it there, DC, Maryland, Virginia. And the the theory is that the Washington Post doesn't do a good enough job of it and so they were kind of competing on that turf or the Washington Times which is primarily a right-wing political publication. And so there isn't and I don't know about the local ecosystem of news in D.C., if there's maybe nobody picking up some of this stuff. But it seems to me that it was simply more a platform than uh, a reporting-driven operation. But, I mean, to Ian's point, sometimes it's better to have something than nothing. Um, the Times Union now, for example, has moved into the Hudson Valley to kind of make up for the loss of coverage of a lot of the local media in that area. And while I think the editors of the Times Union would be the first to say, well, they don't cover everything the way that 15 local newspapers used to, at least there is some coverage there that people can get from a, a reputable news organization. So it's kind of a hard choice. Well, all of these things are hard choices. How do you allocate your resources in an era of uh, limited? So you make, you're making it sound as though it's the news people deciding that, hey, there's an opportunity to provide local news in those communities. And what really, how much of a factor are, as a business, do they see here's an opportunity to bring in more advertisers and more paid subscribers? Yeah, that's a that, valuable isn't that point. that the big driver? That would be. Or even in the case of not-for-profit media, uh, where does the revenue come from? I think it's valid to consider, if you're WAMC, for example, where are the donors, because that suggests that that's where the listeners are. So in deciding where you're going to cover stuff, I mean, it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, isn't it? Big time. And when we've had the uh, very fortunate opportunity to expand and add new people, this is a big part of it. You know, where do we have a base who's not being served? And where do we have people who are maybe getting more, you know, coverage and resources from WAMC than, than is justified based on who's actually using the station there? Yeah. But I, I hear you, Barbara, that when you've, because you and I have come from commercial-driven ventures, and you do, when I first became the editor of the record in the early 90s, I remember asking for a breakdown of where our readers were. I asked the circulation director, show me the zip codes so that I can understand. And I, when I saw where the, some of the power was that we weren't covering, uh, the circulation director said, yeah, yeah, don't worry about that stuff. We've got that covered. In other words, don't put your reporters any place where we already have great uh, circulation uh, because we don't need it. We've got it covered. Right. <laughs> oh, well. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting dilemma anyway. And as, as there are continuing cutbacks, these are going to be difficult decisions. Wall Street Journal laid off staffers as a, with a restructuring of its Washington Bureau. So uh, that's a, a big problem. The Washington Post laid off 20 staffers and eliminated hundreds of other roles. A lot of changes coming around as the media continue to shake out as a result of the digital revolution. So we're interested in your thoughts, by the way, folks. Media at WAMC.org is how you can share your views. I'm Rex Smith here with Barbara Lombardo and Ian Pickus. We're talking about the media. Uh, we probably ought to get to the important issue of the Supreme Court arguments on that remarkable law having to do, well, that is laws, I should say, in Florida and Texas 
that are trying to limit the ability of internet companies to uh, moderate content on their platforms. Uh, you know, it's such a difficult issue. Here we have two states that are trying to restrict what content moderation can do, which arose from political considerations, the claim in both Republican-led states that the platforms were discriminated against conservatives, but it really goes to some tough issues on freedom of speech, right? On each side. And that, I think, is where it's so difficult for these justices to make a decision because both states are saying that the big internet companies, both sides of this claim the mantle of free speech. The internet companies are operating social media platforms that are public forums and they shouldn't be allowed to discriminate. But on the other hand, the platforms like Google and Facebook say that they're exercising editorial judgment. And we have often said they ought to do that, that, that those platforms should be compelled by the marketplace, the same way we have been, to make thoughtful judgments. It's a tough decision. It really is. These are really interesting and difficult questions, and I think the court's going to want to punt. To punt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. That's that's a perfect term for this. I was going to say mull it over and maybe kick it back to the states for uh, for them to fine tune what they're trying to accomplish. The uh, Charles Savage in the New York Times had a nice piece that very uh, that listed the takeaways for this, and I like the way that he likened each side's arguments to, is it is social media like a telephone that anybody can use? We expect everybody to have it and everybody to be able to communicate via, via unfettered, or is it like a newspaper that can, where the owners of that vehicle can exercise editorial judgment? I mean, I, it's, uh, it's hard, they, are, they are hard questions. Hard, hard questions. It's another area where the technology has outpaced the society because Facebook has 1 billion users. So it is the public square now, but it's not really. You're signing up for a service. It's not standing on the street corner and saying whatever you want, right? So I don't know an answer here. I will say, you know, as a user of what used to be called Twitter X, there is, I think, a lot of upside to content moderation. Yeah. by these platforms because you're seeing what happens when that goes away. And especially since we now have a lot of content that we know is manipulated not just by domestic political influencers, but uh, by foreign governments. Uh, an old uh, elementary school friend of mine, whom I haven't seen in many decades, posted on Facebook uh, recently, reposted something by a woman who claimed that she had just gotten back from Ukraine and it was basically an anti-Ukraine, anti-Zelensky rant at some length as to why the United States is foolish to be supporting Ukraine. And I had to write to my friend, be careful what you post because our CIA, the Mueller report, uh, a Republican-led congressional inquiry have found that there has been a lot of political manipulation undertaken by Russia and by other uh, state players. And he may well be playing right into the hands of Putin's effort to destabilize the United States and to especially get the U.S. out of the way so Russia can take over Ukraine. And my friend's response was, well, I don't know the woman, but she's a friend of a friend, so I tend to believe it. Mm -hmm. Well, on Facebook, friend means... <laughs> <laughs> Someone you went to elementary school could have with, been, not yeah. that recently. Yeah, or, it or, could or even, just, less. even less. Even yeah. less. 
And so when you know that that kind of stuff goes down, you think, well, there ought to be some moderation. They ought to be able to, if you run Facebook, we ought to encourage them to stop the blatant effort to manipulate public information. We ought to stop racism and calls for violence. Should we try to stop uh, flagrant lies? Um, that's a little bit harder, isn't it? Uh, lying is... Uh... Well, especially if you go back to January 6th, 2021, the issues were twinned. Yes. It was undoubtedly a political decision by the platforms to say we're turning off Trump's account. But it was very much related to the question of spreading misinformation and the end game being violence. Exactly. And it was all wrapped up into one. Yeah. And so that gets uh, the hackles of the politicians aroused. And that's why Florida and Texas responding on behalf of Donald Trump, let's say. But it scares the heck out of me. And I would think you and you too, listeners, like who who is making the decisions about what is fit to be aired and what isn't or what is fit to be on uh, line and, and isn't. But you made those decisions for readers in Saratoga yes, Springs. Yes, my heart in the right place. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> e but even back then... There was uh, protections that uh, newspaper companies availed themselves of by saying, well, we're not going to be responsible for things that are on uh, posted by the public on our website or the comments on our because we didn't want to touch those with a 10-foot pole. We could not decide what was true or wasn't true. And do you remember that? that yes, we, because... We, we had this hands-off on editing at all. It was all. A, a legal standard because if you touched them, if you edited them, then you were responsible for the content. If, however, you just let this stuff fly, then you were legally protected as, to a certain extent from being uh, liable for and, those kinds And then of what we ultimately had to do was decide just what isn't going to go up at all. Yeah. And for as a result, a lot of news media have cut off comment on articles. Do you allow commentary at WAMC.org? No. Yeah, see? Not anymore. For that reason, uh, because you would be liable, you'd have to check everything that people say uh, or else be held liable for it. Right, and now do I want Elon Musk deciding for the world what can be posted or not posted on whether you're going to listen to Twitter or not or follow Twitter or not? That's pretty scary. I mean, yeah. elections, the decider? life and death have been propelled by what can catch fire on social media, true or false. And we know that some of the commentators call it pink slime journalism. Mm -hmm. A lot of intentionally manipulated uh, journalistic sites now in the United States. There are um, politically connected journalism organizations uh, that are springing up that conceal that fact, uh, that present themselves as real, legitimate local news organizations like the Saratogian or the Record of the Times Union. But they are, in fact, now intentionally misleading, subtly, perhaps, but they are intentionally misleading their readers, their viewers, in, in order to boost political candidates. How do you deal with that kind of thing in this context, you know? I see. Anyone? We, we all, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in this case, dead air speaks uh, the volumes about this. It's really difficult. We have this interesting article here written by a Ph.D. candidate at Columbia who is uh, researching the history of disinformation, who points out that this is not new in American history. The manipulation of the media for political ends really goes back to our founding, and very virulently so. But what's different is the power of these social media platforms. It's so much broader than what a newspaper in Colonial Virginia or Pennsylvania might have 
uh, the impact that it might have had. It's sad to say, but there is a lot of truth to the old adage. People will believe what they read. Yeah. They don't do a lot of due diligence on a link they click on from social media. It's much easier to reshare it in one second than it is to investigate the origin of the website and what angle it might be taken. And I think, not to bring it back to this because we go there a lot lately on this show, but I think candidate Trump sort of understood this feedback loop and he hacked it. You go out on a talk show, you say Barack Obama's birth certificate is false. That gets coverage. And then you say, look at all these stories about the false birth certificate. And uh, he rode that wave for months and months. Yeah, absolutely. And we all believe it. It makes you wonder about the definition of if there isn't a way to sort of, I wouldn't say credential media, but there are steps to evaluate media for their credibility uh, and uh, getting sort of a seal of approval from an independent arbiter. Of course, nobody is going to trust the arbiters. It's <laughs> a decade ago when uh, I remember seeing on social media somebody passing along something that was obviously to me uh, false. And I wrote, why don't you run this through Snope? Uh, remember Snopes, uh, yeah. which was a uh, basically a truth teller. Um, yeah, fact, fact checker, checker, debunker. Mm -hmm. Fact checker. And uh, the response that came was another left-wing sop uh, that you couldn't trust uh, Snopes. And, and, you know, we have a fact checker in uh, the Washington Post by a wonderful journalist, Glenn Kessler, and, and a lot of organizations. PolitiFact uh, has been doing this. But people don't trust that either. I don't know where you turn for this. And, you know, some efforts have been underway for a long time. Government has tried to restrict that. Uh, when I was a young reporter at the uh, state capitol, you know, you had to get a credential to be part of the Legislative Correspondence Association that uh, was sort of a mark of approval. And there were arguments about whether one news organization could get it because it turned out that one of the reporters had been drawing some financial support from the uh, Senate Republicans. <laughs> uh, but that even is used to target journalists. Uh, what was going on? It was Iowa, right, where there was a denial of press freedom? for. There was a case where a reporter um, spent five years trying to get her credentials to cover the legislature in Iowa and was turned down over and over again, even without an explanation. And as she tried to jump through the what seemed to be the required hoops so that she wasn't uh, merely in a freelance journalist who might write a story that somebody might use, she was able to hook up with legitimate media and still was turned down and still without explanation. Uh, five years, and it took for her to start a lawsuit. And there was an organization that helped her uh, sue, and once she sued... What do you know? She's, <laughs> she's suddenly in. She it's, suddenly gets a seat on the press so bench, this right? Is a state, this is a state law deciding who can cover or not cover. Yeah, and it reminded me of a revolution in sports journalism, actually, when the NHL realized, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. Let's let the bloggers in the press box. This was over a decade ago. And guess what? The bloggers are the ones carrying the coverage forward. It's not the traditional dying news outlets that used to staff 82 hockey games a year. That's what the Iowa story reminded me of. We should be so lucky as to have reporters in states like Iowa who want to be in the Capitol covering the Capitol. Uh, seems to me the gatekeeping in that place uh, in this particular story was misguided. Hmm. But it's scary because that's if it's happening in Iowa, how easy that was for them to do. 
and how hard it was to undo. Five years of fighting uh, while filing stories for the local uh, radio station and freelancing on a, on a statewide basis. And uh, you encourage, therefore, consumers to say, pay attention to the brands that you think you can trust. That's harder and harder to detect, though. And it's also harder when the people that the, the brands that they trust go by the name of Tucker Carlson. And there was uh, <laughs> interviews on, yeah. I think it was on CNN, that there were uh, people being, voters being interviewed about uh, the primary. Maybe it, was, maybe it was in Michigan and how people believed what they were heard what they heard from Tucker Carlson. We're not afraid of Putin. Mm. He's just trying to take back what's rightfully his. Oh boy. That that interview served its purpose. Yeah. And 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 on the flip side or a related side to it, uh, by at least telling pe telling the rest of the public and main through the mainstream what um, people are thinking maybe will help hit home the importance of everybody going out to vote. All right. On that point we're gonna have to call it a day with gratitude to our listeners uh, for joining us once again on The Media Project. Thanks to David Gustina, the producer of The Media Project. If you're a print person, you may not know that the word producer means this is the person who does the work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, grateful to uh, Barbara Lombardo and to Ian Pickus, and I'm Rex Smith. Thanks to you folks for joining us. We'll hope to see you again next week on The Media Project. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat to get insurance she employed. The Media Project is a national production of WAMC, Northeast Public Radio. This week's projectors include Judy Patrick, former editor of the Daily Gazette and vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association, Barbara Lombardo, the former editor of the Saratogian and a journalism professor at the University at Albany, former Times Union associate editor Mike Spain, and me, David Gustina, producer of The Media Project, will also sit on the panel this week. Look for program number 1708. You can listen to The Media Project anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. Now, newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding... They all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. Ting-ling-ling newspaper guild. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. All together fits the bill. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the day. Now, publishers are such interesting people. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny, Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.